Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Resistance Recovery. I'm very excited to have Mark Vernon with us this week, and he is the author of this book and quite a few others. And it's entitled A Secret, Christi- Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, the Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness. <laughs> so before we start, Mark, maybe a little bit about you and your background. Thank you very much for having me on. I like talking about these things. Um, and partly because it coming to what I write about in the book, which we're going to explore, um, felt like something of a discovery of a secret history to me um, that felt quite salvific, actually. Um, I used to be a priest in the Church of England and, you know, was always interested in the big questions in religion always sensed that somewhere in the Christian tradition was something of radical importance and transformational potential. Um, But even though, you know, I read theology and um, got involved in religion in all sorts of ways, um, and it was a mixed bag, it wasn't all bad at all, but felt I wasn't quite getting to the heart of it. And so that led me to have essentially a breakdown, and I left the church in my early 30s, and took me on this journey that eventually brought me via doing a PhD in Plato, um, training as a psychotherapist, and back to um, being able to write the book, um, which is in a way, it's not a, it's not biographical in the sense it's not about my journey, but it is the end product of that journey for sure. And how long were you clergy? Um, I did what they call in the Church of England a curacy. So that's you train for three years. And then you do a kind of apprenticeship with a vicar for three years. And then after that period, when it became time for me to look for a second job, I realized that actually I was in quite a state and that I shouldn't continue. It's interesting because uh, I, too, have a theological training and I absolutely love seminary. I love the library. I love the chapel. I love the Tweedy professors. Uh, But there's always been a huge disjunct between that and actual participation in church. And I've never really been able to reconcile them. So your biography speaks to me as well. No, it's a subtle business. And I still try and tease it apart. And I mean, I think it's partly that the concerns of churchgoers are actually quite different from the concerns of religious questers. Um, And that... You don't. You only see that when you actually experience it, mm. um, and the concerns of priests and clergy, which may be very good, but they're essentially consolatory. They're essentially pastoral, rather than really transformational or expansive. Which, of course, can be a very troubling experience. Um, someone once said to me that the trouble with Western Christianity is that you only have one sort of official figure. Whereas like in Indian religiosity, you will have the priests that do the stuff in the temple, but you'll also have the gurus and the sadhus and the prophets that you go elsewhere to find. So they, it's like a division of labor, which actually is really helpful, but it's rather been lost in the West since particularly the collapse of the monasteries. Yeah, so there's a much more expanded sense of religiosity that goes through the culture. Yeah. So... This book, in many ways, is about a figure that we'll return to, Owen Barfield. But am I right to assume that you became acquainted with Barfield only long after you left uh, the church? Yeah. um, I can't remember quite when I first heard the words Owen Barfield, but it was (laughs) something to do with doing this PhD on Plato, which I got. I got the qualification, but still felt I didn't quite really know what Plato was talking about. and 
at some point someone said to me, you need to read Owen Barfield. And Barfield talks about how when engaging with pre-modern writers, the first thing to do is unlearn what you think you know about them um, and try and start afresh because then their consciousness, which is connected but subtly different as well from ours, can start to speak and it all adds up. You know, so Plato's reason connects to his mythologizing um, and um, his talk of rituals and rites and invocations in the dialogues connects to the sense of aporia, kind of hiatus, not knowing what's going on, which is very powerful in the dialogues as well. Um, so yeah, so it was it was that, I think probably that made me first read Barfield and then I sort of got hooked. Yeah, so for me, it's something comparable. I, had, I was certainly aware of this uh, concept that you would see in anthropology of participation mystique, but I could never really quite get my head around it. And it was Barfield that really um, that really helped me understand that, and that that was something that was certainly certainly Plato was writing about it. So maybe as a way of starting, we can talk about what this idea of participation really is. Yeah. So Barfield's thesis, which he 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 put together from studying evidence, um, it's quite important, I think, to stress this. Um, he wasn't just a mystic. In fact, I don't suppose he really thought of himself as a mystic at all. Rather, um, he was a philologist and was very interested in how words change meaning. And he realized because of his, um, uh, the way he was impressed by romantic philosophy rather than um, analytic philosophy. So this is the philosophy that comes out of figures like Coleridge, Mm. that words are meaningful because they have a kind of inner vitality. They have a kind of quality of soul which is why we hear meaning when we speak and not just air, you know, sound modulating on the airwaves. Um, and he then put that together with the way that, ch- that words change meaning and realized that words could become what he called fossils of consciousness. They could tell us how the experience of being human and relating to the world around and about shifts over time. So that gives you the sense of how a participation mystique um, as you put it there, um, could be an experience that humans had in former ages that we've lost now. And so by being able to track the contours of that loss, you can understand more about where we are in the present. And that then opens up the possibility for a new feature, future. And he called these different phases different qualities of participation. Um, so he called um, the old quality of participation, original participation. Um, and I think he uses this word original, not just because he meant it belonged before, certainly not because it was the first and primordial, but just because it's the earliest that you can get in touch with through written texts. You know, if you think about writers like Homer, they reach back, say, maybe 3000 years where there's this sense of, of, of participating in the world in much more directly um, felt ways than we do now you know there wasn't Homer never asked the question is does life have a meaning for him right, the question right. is always there's so much meaning how am I going to navigate all this flood of meaning around me um, it's not you know am I lost isolated in a cosmos but how am I going to relate to all these different consciousnesses around me human and non-human um, and divine Um, And so that's what he calls original participation. And then through the way that words change meaning um, and, you know, particularly in writers like Plato, you see a sense of the individual arising that didn't really exist before, which inevitably involves some sort of loss of connection to withdraw into yourself and so build up the sense of self. But then how in in new dispensations and particularly Christianity around the Western um, world, um, it became so important because it was a, a way of reconnecting with the world around and with the gods um, through the figure particularly of Jesus. Um, and then the modern period, again, is a kind of another stepping back process of alienation. So it raises the question of what, what he called a final participation might look like, the, the, the future to which we're headed, the telos, final in the sense of teleological rather than you know, end, end point. And this, this sort of, uh, highly subjective, often alienated 
type of consciousness that we experience now, Barfield was very uh, quick to warn us to not take that for granted as always existing. And so is yeah. it fair to say that in, for Homer, even you know, going before Plato, that he, the, the notion of something like metaphor wouldn't even exist for him? Yeah, so you know, metaphor implies a sense of disconnection that the metaphor then bridges. Um, and whereas he thought that in the ancient world, language spoke directly of what it knew. Um, and so it wasn't literal in a narrow sense, meaning that everyone was a bit simple and fundamental. Um, it, you know, clearly, if you read Homer and other texts, and we know this now, too, from engaging with uh, indigenous peoples, it's immensely sophisticated and has its own wisdom and intelligence. Um, but it's just very different from ours because it's built from a sense of direct participation in the world rather than the more objective stance of modern consciousness um, that then has a different kind of sophistication through logic and rationality and empiricism and so on, um, which you know does build knowledge, but always at the cost of disconnection too. So yeah. This kind of forward momentum is born of a sense of struggle and alienation now, Barfield realized. And so just the example I believe he uses, he talks about the word pneuma, spirit, which also means breath or wind. So in earlier times, there was no, they weren't really making a hard distinction that when you were speaking about pneuma, you were indeed speaking of the breath bearing life, the spirit inherent in that. And what, what Barfield seems to be making a very stunning move is he, seem, he says that we, we've assumed that literal meanings evolved into metaphorical meanings, but he's saying quite the opposite. He's saying everything, or I guess you could say nothing was metaphorical, but it only gradually did we abstract out a literal meaning from things. And that... Yeah. And, is it fair to say that this literalism is itself a function of loss of participation? I mean, I think so. Yeah, he um, was arguing about arguing with ideas about the evolution of language, which were very dominant in the mid part of the 20th century um, and still roughly obtained today. Um, and this is the idea that metaphors evolved from literal language in its origins. You know, so this is putting it a bit simply, but the idea would be that language evolves because our ancestors learned that a particular kind of grunt actually meant there's bananas over there or something like that. So right. it was always utilitarian and functional um, language. But then through processes that aren't very clear, sometimes people talk about kind of cognitive leaps. Sometimes they talk about the metaphor stage. Um, anyway, the assumption is that something in the brain happens that meant that we were able to become more sophisticated. And so this literal language evolved into metaphorical language. Um, now, Barfield rejected this, again, partly on an empirical grounds. He said that if, if you look back through the use of language, there's no sense that it becomes more and more literal the furthest you go back. It's always very sophisticated. Um, and so, you know, rejected that idea of language and instead felt that language arises from a rich engagement with the world around which itself is rich, which has a, an inner life that people knew. And so language was born from that abundance. Um, and so it was always sophisticated because people's engagement with reality was sophisticated before that. And language itself was part of the rich mix of reality. It, it, it would yeah, we tend to think of it as sort of added on or a very nominalist way of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, you know Christi Christianity is very influential on Barfield. And so this is partly in conversation with Christianity too, you know, with things like the famous opening of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. Mm. Um, and word then, logos, doesn't just mean words in a literal sense, but means the tendency, the impulse, the intelligence, the order that runs through all things. Um, and so there's a reason Barfield felt that this word logos means all, all of that, um, not just straightforwardly literal words. Much like Numa, as you mentioned there, 
means wind, breath and spirit. I mean, you know, Plato quite clearly felt that the one word pneuma made sense because he felt that when we breathe, we take in the spiritual force that then in our breath becomes our own life. Um, and so the wind of the air, which is a spiritual force through our own breathing and um, taking in that spiritual dynamic becomes the spirit within us, becomes our life. Um, and so that experience of participating, even in breathing, supports the what we now think of as three meanings of the word pneuma. Um, and it's crucial in Christian terms as well, because the Greek word pneuma appears in the New Testament. And when a translator um, encounters it, they have to decide whether to say spirit, breath or wind. Uh, and in that uh, separation, something is lost. Um, you know, so in, in John's gospel, again, it talks about the pneuma blowing where it wills. That's the way with the people of pneuma. And normally that's turned into a metaphor now. The wind blows where it is. That's the way of the spirit. But actually, originally something much more intimate was being um, conveyed. So a good part of your book, I mean, you do this, you do this thing that's really wonderful. You show how there was a loss of participation, both in the Hebraic and in the in the Greek context. And um, you focus quite a bit on the Deuteronomist and how you can be, you begin to see, um, you, you, you say something to the effect of, the Deuteronomist wasn't just uh, internalizing some idea of monotheism, it was actually a reflection of a new experience of the divinity that had been individualized. Can we break that down a little bit and maybe contrast that with what it was like prior to that? Yeah, um, so Barfield sketches this out, particularly in his book, Saving the Appearances. And what I wanted to do in my book was to flesh it out, um, mm. partly because you know he covers a lot of ground quite quickly. Um, and I also though wanted to see whether modern biblical scholarship um, supports his view, not proves it because biblical scholarship always takes people in different directions, but at least that there was, it, it would, you know, a kind of be a, um, a reasonable way of reading the Bible. And I was very glad to find that it was and that the biblical scholarship that's emerged since Barfield died um, develops even more, in my view. Um, but essentially what the Deuteronomists were onto, I think, was the crisis that was precipitated by the exiles, so when the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were taken into exile in Babylon, and that this forced a huge change in ancient um, Hebrew religion. It was actually when the notion of Judaism was born, really, um, and the Jews became not just the people of Judah, but people with a particular religiosity. Um, and not being able to go to the temple, and so take part in rituals which were much more participatory in the old sense because they were collective, they were associated with place and place is directly associated with local divinities. You know, so Yahweh was the divinity known on Mount Zion, for example. Um, when that was rent, um, it meant that people had to take their sense of their connection to the divine within themselves. Um, and so things like writing become important. So rather than an oral traditions, which again, a shared collective known in the recitation in the moment, writing forges a relationship between you, the written text, and then the meaning of the text, which is almost like the entry point for the divine inspiration. And so it's much more internal. Um, it's, it's very rich in its own way, but it's also has this quality of alienation. And um, Barfield thought that the Deuteronomy, sorry, Bar well, yeah, Barfield thought that what, Biblical scholars now call the Deuteronomists realized this, and so through the exilic period and afterwards developed um, the Deuteronomic canon, part of the Hebrew Bible, to deepen and intensify this emerging sensibility. And so they changed things from the Hebrew tradition before. Um, you know, one example is that in the older parts of the Hebrew Bible, the sins of the fathers are said to fall down upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, that's, that makes a lot of sense in original participation, where there's a shared sense of identity. Um, but the Deuteronomists reform that and say, no, um, the individual is responsible for their actions and their relationship with God. And so, as the Deuteronomists put it, um, 
the sour honey won't be tasted by the children um, and um, other aspects of Deuteronomy which can really re, you know they're quite hard to read often now if they're taken in a, um, a fundamentalist sense um, but when they're taken as a meditation upon what it is to be human and to relate to others in the divine um, sometimes they're a bit of I always think of it as a sort of shock therapy that mm. jolts you into um, a new awareness of things um, and uh, there are other things like, for example, the way that Moses becomes a key figure in this period before Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the old patriarchs, have been the key figures in ancient Hebrew religion. But in the emerging Judaism, Moses becomes increasingly important. And this is in the post-exilic period as well, up to the origins of Christianity. And Moses, for example, was said to have never arrived in the promised land and his burial place is not known and these are immensely significant little details because what that's saying is that Moses' relationship to God wasn't connected to place, wasn't yeah. connected to temple, um, that we shouldn't follow Moses as if he's a patriarch. You know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's burial places were known. They were in the land of the kin. Um, Moses' relationship um, to the Jewish people now is different from that. Um, we're, we, we're supposed to sort of imitate Moses in some way take Moses's life into ourself and um, so all these wonderful differences uh you know apart from being fascinating in their own right they really help me understand what on earth is going on in this otherwise really quite confusing text um, we call the old testament or the hebrew bible and when you were in uh, divinity school or seminary that was not evident to you until you came back around no not at all i mean this sense that um uh the sense of of that, that there was many different parts to the Hebrew Bible, that's there. You know, so one of the things which you learn pretty early on is that monotheism is actually quite a late introduction in the Hebrew Bible in what's called Deutero-Isaiah. Um, now, you know, that's sort of interesting, if not shocking, um, but there's very little sense of why that might be so. Um, and I don't know, I think, you know, it's certainly in, in, in British, and maybe it's true in Anglo-American, history, what's called historicism, greatly fell out of favour in the mid part of the 20th century, the idea that history has an inner meaning. Sure. And that affected, I think, biblical critical scholarship. Um, people didn't look for the inner meaning, they just looked to describe the differences. So we right. learned about the differences, but not quite why it stacks up. Right. Um, right. That's, that's America. That's the Anglo-American tradition here, for sure. But what's really what struck me when I was reading about, you know, the, the separation from the land, the advent of writing, <clears throat> the internalization of this is you suddenly have the birth of a new spirituality that we kind of take for granted, which is this, the lonely scholar, the scholar mystic monk wrestling with the text, internalizing it, going through these changes. And it's really quite stunning to think that there was a time when that wasn't there. You know, because you see it, in, you, you know, you certainly see it amongst pundits in India and Tibetan scholars it's not simply a western thing yeah yeah um I mean you know disputation in amongst Buddhist monks for example <laughs> is the shared quite aggressive thing um mm -hmm. and the meaning emerges collectively there's an older dispensation still quite active there I mean it's changing fast because of engagement with the west of course um, but you can still reach back to it um and then the, you know there's these other wonderful stories about um, uh, people reading scriptures without speaking them and how disturbing that might be when right. it's not voiced. What's going on? Are you possessed? Um, yeah. Is that kind of natural response? Um, right. And then, you know, through figures like the prophets and so on, a much more sense that the individual might have a revelation to impart, which, of course, you know, comes through the exilic and post-exilic period and builds up to... Um, you know, for the Christian, what is the birth of Christianity? But of course, in Judaism, too, there's massive change in the first century AD because rabbinic Judaism is essentially born after the destruction of the Second Temple. So I think there are parallels in both traditions, in fact. So this internalization, something comparable happens in the, in the Greek world. Um, this growing, this awakening of the individuality. Uh, I suppose a lot of people would say that this was a, um, 
the axial age. But suddenly it becomes possible to realize the God within. And this is the claim of Christ, that he somehow realizes this relationship in an unprecedented way. But, and, and then the, the notion of participation is, is still alive in that, at least in the first centuries of Christianity, it was widely recognized that we participate in the life of Christ and thereby become adopted. So, so we, we, through Christ, we too can participate in the life of the Godhead. Yeah, so I think what you see, one way of reading these things, when you have this dynamic sense, something, something is emerging, not just being sort of given once and for all, but something's emerging that the writers, let's say, of the New Testament are grappling with, is that the older Jewish sense of the I amness of Yahweh, now the one God, um, comes clearer to people as they develop their own sense of individuality and I amness. That if you like, you need a relatively integrated sense of yourself to be able to know, reflect, resonate with the genuine unity of all things in the one God. Um, you know, if you have a scattered sense of yourself, you'll have a scattered sense of reality. Um, and so it takes a, to the development of the human psyche to, to know of the one God. Um, and that, you know, you see this in figures like Moses again. You know, Moses is said to have shone with the presence of the divine. And so Moses becomes a mythological character, perhaps rooted in history originally. Don't doubt that. But nonetheless, by reflecting upon the figure of Moses, people intensify that sense of divine presence within themselves. Um, but then the great claim of Christianity is that there was this figure who lived and died and rose, who knew this fullness of the divine presence because they were fully human. And I think that's the significance of the dying as well. Um, it's not, as it were, leaving something of what it is to be human behind that makes space for the God presence. Um, it's by precisely knowing what it is to be human in all its fullness, that the divine life is known in all its fullness as well. Um, but, you know, that's, it's relatively easy to say, but it's something else completely to know. Um, and um, so what you see, I think, with the New Testament writers, say particularly when Paul um, but then in the differences across the Gospels, the spiritual differences across the Gospels, as opposed to the differences of details, um, is a kind of wrestling with the right, right way to express this and capture this. Um, and, you know, sometimes it reads as if Christ does all the work and all we have to do is accept it. Sometimes it reads as if we become more like Christ. Um, but then there are also moments where... The realization is that the way that Christ led is the way for us to go to. And so that by the time you get to the church fathers, for example, in the second, third, fourth centuries, it becomes a common phrase to say that God became man so that we might become God yeah. and know of the divine life within us. Um, and that, I think, is the full realization of the Christian dispensation in the doctrines of the incarnation and the Trinity. So that the divine life, which is in the Logos of the Godhead, um, is also the divine life that is the created world um, filled with the Logos too. Um, and that the difference between humans and the rest of nature is that we can in some way know that consciously, whereas perhaps the rest of nature just kind of lives it. Yeah, and so you use a term that I don't believe Barfield used, but I found it enormously helpful. You say that there's a period of several hundred years, the beginning of Christendom, where there is what you call reciprocal participation. And so this yeah, is, this was, yeah, go, please go. Yeah, no, so yeah, sorry, I should, I've, uh, this is a, I, I, he, Barfield does use it, um, uh, but not often. Um, and, mm -hmm. but when I read it, it made more sense to me, actually, than final participation. Um, you know, you have to remember that Barfield, like the other Inklings, Lewis and Tolkien, they all read Latin and Greek fluently as well as English and God knows what else. And so words like final carried this teleological unfolding 
meaning to them. Whereas for us now, it just means sort of like the end. Um, and so, but re reciprocal um, for me resonated more powerfully. Um, and that is the sense that our life is actually just a reflection of the divine life when, which we know when we, we reciprocate the divine life and so participate in it in that way. Um, yeah, so hence that, that's my use of the word reciprocal. But you're also saying that in reciprocal participation, this embryonic sense of self is present, whereas in original, it was much dimmer or, or non-existent. I think it was present, but just in a different way. It was no more from the outside in rather than from the inside yes. out. Yes. Um, you know, so I don't know, again, if you read Homer, um, it's quite clear that figures like Achilles know different parts of their body to be associated with different deities. And the way that you hold yourself together psychically is by paying um, due respect to the various deities of your body. Um, so the many libations and offerings and sacrifices and so on that are required. So that's a kind of psychic effort that's focused on the outsides to cultivate the inside. Whereas mm. now, you know, we think quite naturally of focusing on our inner fragments and how they might integrate together. And then we can know life more fully. Um, it's, it's, it's it, I, you know, I think it's really I, one of the reasons I love Barfield is that he doesn't think that there's a kind of linear progress um, as if we're getting better than primitives right. before. Um, yeah. But quite the opposite. There's a different dispensation and we can learn about our dispensation in part by reflecting on the older dispensation um, and, and noticing the differences as well as being inspired by the sense of knowing life as they did. And there's a sense that this this is necessarily uneven. It's not going to happen in all places at once. Different parts of the world, different cultures may lag. You can even... You can even apply it, I guess this would be more of an anthroposophical move, but you could apply it to human development. That yeah. the, child, the child is much more in a participatory mode than maybe maybe even the very old as well. But Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's absolutely right, that it happens in cultural time, but it also happens in personal time. And maybe even, you know, in moments of the day that one knows different kinds of participation across the course of the day you know perhaps deep sleep is uh, akin to original participation when there is no sense of self-presence um mm -hmm. then you kind of wake up with a jolt and feel a bit lost <laughs> at the beginning of the day and you know the alienation but you know if you're lucky you have at least one or two moments of connection through the course of the day as well um and so you know the kind of the trick is to notice these shifts and then be able to work with them to make something of them because then that um, deepens your sense of participation, which, you know, figures like Rudolf Steiner and, and, and other developmental figures actually are, are in psychology um, were onto in different ways across the 20th century. And so then there becomes, though, I don't know if it's good or bad, but we, we have a second loss of participation that sort of constellates around Reformation, Renaissance, Enlightenment, and this leads to an even greater sense of interiority. Um, in the case of the enlightenment too, it also leads to this prizing of the faculty of reason above everything else, especially imagination, despite the protest of the romantics. So what would Barfield say was going on there? Was that an inevitability? He, he, he recognized it and he made wonderful observations, well, very penetrating observations at least. Um, for example, you know, how the more that the modern mind knows about the world, less it feels as meaning in the world that it otherwise knows oh, so yeah, that well. that was a beautiful line, yes. Yeah. Um, what was it, the, mo the, more, the more facts, the less knowledge or the more facts, the less wisdom or something? Yes, yes. It's the kind of um, it's the it's the it's the use of the machine metaphor to filter everything that's known about the world. And it has a certain kind of power because it's deeply connected to the development of technology, for example. Um, but it's at the great price, almost like a Faustian pact of not knowing the inside of the whole world. Mm -hmm. put it. Um, and so it comes with this loss of meaning. Um, you know, he's very insightful when it comes to 
understanding how there can be seeming progress alongside the sense of loss and desolation. And so technology becomes uncoupled from meaning and so becomes as dangerous as it is um, for the good, because clearly there's lots of great goods in the modern world, but there's also these tremendous dangers that we become more and more conscious of. Um, but, you know, Barfield felt that whilst the Romantic period at the same time as the Enlightenment period had protested against this elevation of reason above imagination, as you, as you say, um, he thought that now Romanticism needs to come of age and that we need to develop the kind of consciousness that can relate to the world in the ways that people like Wordsworth and Coleridge anticipated, um, so that there can be a kind of coupling together um, of all this hard-won technical wisdom with a wisdom that understands life from the inside out. So that's the great challenge of now. And, and he, you know, he was very interested in poetry and how poetry works because he felt that it can awaken that sense of things within us. Um, now, you know, it's, it's becoming an increasing new moot point whether that will be achieved in time um, or how much of a tragedy there will have to be um, before we give up on the power that the machine take on reality gives us. Um, so it's, you know, it becomes more and more critical. Um, but at least in principle, Barfield does offer a way to engage with now that is hopeful, as well as recognizing um, the fullness of where we're at. Well, it certainly seems that another thing is with the, with the growth of knowledge, uh, enlightenment, analytic knowledge, there's also a growth of power and at the same time, a loss of wisdom. You know, I can remember Steiner once wrote something to the effect of that the problem today is that we have a genius for technology, but we do not have the moral development to use it. That our, our moral development actually lags behind our genius. Yeah, it's getting to, so this sort of crisis situation that we find ourselves in, do you, do you see from where you sit a greater interest in these ideas because of that? I think there is. I mean, I think there is a growing sense, whether it be through straightforwardly ecological movements, and um, whether it be with the growth of the spiritual but not religious, um, you know, part of the trouble with modern churches, and I mean churches of the modern period, is that they lost this mystical sense. Um, certainly in England, it happened very abruptly with the closure of the monasteries, yeah. um, you know, which was, it's, it's, it's hard to overestimate how much a part of society they were in the medieval world. You were never more than half an hour's walk from a religious house of some kind in the medieval world. There really were two kind of economies. There was the productive economy and there was the spiritual economy. Um, that worked side by side and that suddenly went. I'm not saying it was a perfect world, far from it, no doubt it was full of corruption and all sorts, but in principle, humans were working at life at many levels, whereas now we're working only at one level. But I think through ecological crisis, through religious crisis, through mental health crisis, you know, which one sees as a psychotherapist, um, there's a growing sense that something has gone very wrong but in that moment also comes the sense of how can we rediscover what we need as human beings. And I don't know quite how that will play out, of course, um, but there is, I, my sense is an increasing desire for it. For, yeah, for you, know, you, see somebody, again. you see very few people say that the answer will lie in the imagination. Like a, re, a new imagination of what it is to be human, especially relative to the natural world. I, I would yeah. like to... Can I just pause a second and read something you wrote that I found uh, really wonderful? Uh, page 176, and you're writing about poetry and the imagination, and you write, so I'm gonna read a whole paragraph. In fact, today's composed poems and chosen metaphors are doubly powerful because they are deliberate. The contemporary writer is aware of what they are trying to do. They are letting the words speak for themselves by consciously causing the words to speak. The reader shares in the creative aspect of the enterprise as well, which is why there's delight not only in what's disclosed, but in the act of disclosure. 
This is a role performed by a self-conscious individual. That's why poetry is so important today. It preserves and integrates our active role as modern people in the disclosure of the inside of the world. And I, I read that and I was just thinking, so if one could be in a house of worship and the liturgy could somehow become poetic again and disclose the inside of things and, and, and related to another part of your book, which is you're, you're citing Blake, but it becomes less about moral exhortation and the sort of reimagining what it means to be human in relation to one another in the world. I, I, you know, you, you, could, you can just, you just want it to go there, you know, because we have that experience listening to poetry. And yet we don't have that experience sitting in the, in the church. I think it's a lot of it is a kind of education, um, not the kind of education that fills you up with facts so you can pass in an exam, but the kind of education that makes you more aware of what's going on in human experience. Um, and, you know, again, part of the problem with a lot of modern churches is that if you're in the congregation, you're just quite passive. You're mm. just receiving what is offered and what's offered may be very beautiful uh, and moving, but it just leaves you as a recipient rather than as an active participant in what's going on. Um, and, you know, similarly, a lot of the arts can be presented to us as if there are genius artists um, that we can't possibly um, imitate, um, although we can appreciate. Um, now, look, there's a lot of people pushing against that in the arts, but say even in the sciences, um, you know, why are we taught the processes of, say, mathematical proof when we're at school? Um, and we're taught it because when you can prove, you can know what's true and that you can build stuff and so on. This purely utilitarian approach. But what if we were taught mathematical proof as an aesthetic experience, as the sense of something coming together, the kind of click where we yeah. see a symmetry or a coherence that we hadn't seen before, so that numbers themselves become part of the poetry of life. They yeah. come alive too, and there's a pleasure and enjoyment of manipulating and exploring um, the world of numbers. You know, I mean, again, mathematicians will talk about this. They'll say that beauty is as much a guide as anything else. But to oh, be able to teach kids yeah. that this is so, so they can become more alert to their own capacity to, to follow that energy in life, I think that's going to become increasingly important. Mm -hmm. But it almost feels like the poets themselves are saving something for the future for us. They're, they're, they're maintaining that sense of interiority. I mean, I'm yeah. so, I, I personally never really got a sense of poetry until pretty late in life when it suddenly clicked. And then I was like, you know, the interiority of it and the, 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 the sorcery of it. To, to juxtapose words with spaces in between and change consciousness is just magic, you know? Um, well, I think we need Blake's extra twist here because, I mean, you know, when I was ordained and um, in the 1980s, 1990s, um, it was an era, certainly in England, where there were a lot of Church of England vicars um, who were writing about religion as if, the point about religion was just to sort of manufacture meaning as if the way that poetry functioned was that it, it enchanted us with the sense that there was a purpose in life, but really there wasn't. Um, it was the age of so-called non-realism um, when people said, look, church it has use in a society because it binds people together. It gives them a sense of place and so on, but doesn't actually reveal reality to them, doesn't show God to us. They were much more cautious about that. And I think, you know, Blake was onto this, too, when these notions first started appearing in the Enlightenment. And he said, look, if if all we had was our own creativity in an otherwise empty world, um, dead world, machine world, the creativity would just spiral in on itself until it would just sort of evaporate um, and consume itself. All there would be, as he put it, is the ratio. Um, he said, no, our poetic genius, by which he just meant the way that we can work poetry meaning work with genius, with spirit, our, our capacity to engage with spirit 
means that we're in an open system and we're drawing in from that which is more than us all the time. And so I think it's really important to stress that element and to push back, particularly in the religious world, against these kind of non-realist liberal figures um, who tell us that religion is just a kind of consolation in an otherwise empty cosmos. And no, it's truth bearing. And it's, that's, that's the truth of the imagination. It leads to inspiration through its intuitions. And knowing how to follow those lines is absolutely crucial for our future. And, and Blake made the even more daring move of identifying the imagination with the deity, didn't he? Yeah, so he thought that um, he calls Jesus the imagination is one of his phrases yeah. because he, he realized that what we call the human imagination is just the shadow or reflection of the divine creative act. You know, this, this was formalized in Coleridge's observation that there's a primary imagination which we can share in. Um, and so we become co-creators with the divine. And, you know, again, the minute you start thinking about this, it does make sense. It's not magic. Um, you know, if you live in a city, um, the city is the tangible product of the human imagination. Mm. Um, if you go into a beautiful church, Gothic architecture is the tangible product of the divine imagination speaking to the human, which is why it moves us and can take us somewhere. Um, so we just got to sort of orientate ourselves and then with luck more of our society around that kind of dynamic and not just the sort of utilitarian approach. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a product of a, of a liberal uh, Methodist upbringing. And when I was reading on page uh, 181, when you're talking about Blake and you talk about Blake, <laughs> um, people preferring the waste of moral law you know, and it just it just struck me that in the absence of any kind of, I guess, imagination, but in times past, I would say real spiritual practice, everything becomes ethics, especially in the liberal Protestant world. And the more we go down this road of ethics, the more the church becomes allied with one or another, you know, you're a Republican or a Democratic church and all is lost. And no wonder the pew is empty at that point. I mean, again, yeah, and, and, and it's I think it's very corrosive in society, too, you know, with culture wars and so on, that it's not the one side's good and the other side's bad. Both sides feel they have a moral rightness. But what happens with the waste of the moral law is that moral sides get weaponized and hurled at the opposite side. And that, of course, drags both sides down. Um, you know, Buda's, uh, sorry, um, Blake's got a, a deep analysis here um, of which parallels a kind of evolution of consciousness notion. So in one, he, he said there's a state of mind, which he calls Beulah, um, that, that knows about the ascetic qualities of the world, that loves things, that yearns for justice and so on. In a way, it's Beulah, it's called, yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Bible word. Um, I think uh, somewhere in the Hebrew Bible, um, one of the prophets says, my land will be called Beulah, um, uh -huh. will be sort of lovely. Um, but um, what Blake also noticed is that there can easily become a desire to hold on to what's thought of as lovely, to possess it, to kind of manage it, to preserve it. And then morality comes in. And instead of opening up reality to us, it becomes a way of trying to defend these lovely things, um, these qualities of justice and so on but it can't and so it attacks becomes defensive um, and aggressive and that then leads to the wasting of Beulah and hence the wastes of the moral law um, because it's lost touch with the spirit um, and so, so Beulah becomes calcified before it de devolves into morality yeah yeah and people feel that they need to defend these good things forgetting so that they come from the divine source which doesn't need any defense at all uh, beautiful, yeah. But in, in a Jungian sense, or it, there's a loss of the symbolic loses its sense of the, the quality of the numinous. Yeah, that uh, symbols transmit. Um, symbols are thought to be just empty metaphors to link back to what we were saying before, just kind of bits of color that human minds of their own capacities add to life, rather than seeing the metaphor, imagination, symbol, and so on communicates us to the source of life, the origin of all things. So, I mean, I think we've arrived at a point where um, 
because you know you and I both work, I work with addicts. <clears throat> and we can both suddenly see, we can speak to how the loss of the imagination is actually a cause of great emotional distress. And in fact, and then in turn, at least, at least in my line of work, a lot of times addiction, you know, drugs and alcohol become a way of trying to re-enliven re or recolor something that's been, you know, wasted or bled out or a, a drab existence, so to speak. So do you believe that the imagination has a therapeutic value that can be used effectively even in, even in a therapeutic dyad? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my experience is that often a turning point in therapy is reached when people realize that their inner image making is not just kind of flotsam and jetsam that means nothing on a sea of emptiness and nothingness, um, but actually is speaking to them. And so they maybe have a dream and then start to realize it tells them something or in the therapeutic session, um, an image will come to mind that will lead us somewhere. Um, or, you know, as a therapist, you offer someone an image that comes to your mind and, and they're able to do something with it. Um, you know, that's a kind of very personal sense of imagination, turning a corner and being seen as something to follow and track and understand. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it's a good moment. Um, people stop saying, oh, I'm just having a dopamine rush or, you know, <laughs> serotonin something or other as if they're machines. <laughs> Um, and realize that actually they have an inner life that is trying to speak, um, you know, and, you know, in a way, why wouldn't they? Because people come to therapy because they've got very troubled inner lives. Um, uh, but rather than just trying to sort of suppress or tinker with that inner life, you know, which is understandable because suffering is real, my goodness. Um, and, you know, it, it is unbearable, maybe for quite long periods of time for many people. Um, but if you can sit with people and not just want to suppress it or fix it, but try and listen and understand something of it, um, then, you know, in time, something very new can start to emerge. That's certainly the kind of goal of psychotherapy. It's why it's different from behavioral therapies. Although I think behavioral therapies can be useful because sometimes it's just too much and you need strategies and tactics or medication to help people too. Are you aware of a recent book called um, Caring for Souls in a Neoliberal Age? No, I haven't heard that. There's a man, Bruce Rogers Vaughn, and he, what he noticed, he's a little older than both of us. Uh, he came, he's at the end of his career. And he noticed that people were presenting differently, that there was a, a more empty, a greater emptiness, um, and he, uh, he got puzzled by this and started doing research and he found sociologists primarily, but they were calling it something like the new chronic or normotic illness, meaning that it was so pervasive in culture that, um, that it's hard to see because everyone has it. But one of the things he said is he said it had three sort of pieces. He said, uh, well, this is one, one approach to it. He said there was deinstitutionalization kind of unfortunate term, but what he meant was the institutions that kept us together as communities, churches, marriage, after school programs, that these things have become defunded or for a variety of reasons, it's, it's become harder to be in a marriage or even in a friendship. And then he says with that becomes a D, what he calls a de-individualization. And that means that rather than have an identity that's formed by communal relations and individual idiosyncrasy, now you just have the one, you know, you're just an individual. Now you have to, you're plagued with the question of who am I? Because you can't answer that by reference to neighborhood or church or what have you. And he says, when you get here, he says, the real regulating thing of the identity becomes uh, the market. So we become what we buy. We brand ourselves. Everyone, it's the entrepreneurial self. And then he gets to the place where I think really speaks to your book, 
he says the final D is desymbolization. And he goes, now there becomes a poverty of self-expression because we don't have this rootedness. We're not embedded in these, these institutions or neighborhoods or what have you. And so when I was reading this book, that book kept popping in my mind because the therapeutic value of being able to, what he even says is he, he borrows this from W.E.B. Du Bois. He says, um, ah, what's the phrase? He says, eventually what will happen is you will turn to the other to define you. You will become a diagnosis as opposed to, because you don't have the capacity to speak your reality, speak your truth. And I just read your book and I was like, the imagination, <laughs> there needs to be a book written about how do we work with even people's descriptions of their pain in an imaginal way in order to, for them to read, to come to themselves. Yeah. Um... I'm on That's right, that was a mouthful. I'm interviewing yeah, you. Yeah, I tell you what it reminded me of a bit, partly because of this use of the, the prefix D, um, was uh, Ivan Illich and his notion of de-schooling. Yeah. Um, you know, with the sense that um, rather than education being seen as something that happens across the whole of life, you know, as in many parts of life, as well as across the life course. Um, so it takes as much place in the art galleries, in the school, you know, as in the home, as in um, public engagement um uh it it becomes just this one thing which the teacher kind of um forces into you in order that you get the examinations that you're required to then be of um sort of use to the economy um yeah. so he, hence his notion of de-schooling um taking education from just um taking place in schools to again understanding it as a life engagement um and you know the thinking about symbolism and so on will be part of that, realizing how those parts of our life educate us as well. Um, so yeah, may, I, don't, I don't know whether um, that's a direct link, but um, the sense of what's become collapsed, partly because of bureaucracy, because of rationalization, um, the sort of hyper-modernity, again, where everything is judged by metrics rather than by qualities. Um, and it has these longer term um, deleterious effects that then show up um, in mental health problems because people don't have the rich connection with life um, to make sense of the things that happen to them. And they, you know, they have to struggle as more and more isolated units. Um, and uh, that's too much to bear very often. Well, it is. But the, the, one of the things that really gets me is that now we have fantasies of completely uh, that lack interiority at all, meaning um, artificial intelligence, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shed this mortal coil and put, put myself up in the cloud that we actually, or, or like the movie, uh, remember that movie, I think it was called She, about the guy who fell in love with his phone. <laughs> and I can remember watching that and thinking, you know, if they'd made this movie when I was a kid, nobody would have watched it. And yet there's almost this sense that now we're at a place where we're, we're beginning to participate in some participatory sense in the machines, that we're ascribing the machines human qualities. And that's just, that's just crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm involved in a project that's looking at what we're calling spiritual intelligence. And partly the idea is to contrast it with artificial intelligence um, on the understanding that the, the, the risk with artificial intelligence is not that it suddenly wakes up and becomes conscious. Personally, I don't think that is going to happen. Um, if you look at the development of artificial intelligence, the inability of silicon to replicate sentience seems to be becoming more and more clear. Um, but nonetheless, artificial intelligence is immensely powerful, very efficient, and the risk is that our society increasingly gets coloured by the way that it works. And so we forget, because it's dismissed or marginalised, the qualities of 
intelligence that we otherwise have, which are things like the imagination, intuition, and so on, which just for the sake of having a way of capturing it, we're calling spiritual intelligence in this case. Um, but it's essentially, it's something to do with disposition and comprehension, you know, understanding in the true sense, because it's conscious, because it's felt, because um, it can use symbols and see over horizons, not just, you know, be based on um, extraordinary quantities of calculation. Um, right. A friend of mine um, put this very neatly recently, um, this amazing supercomputer DeepMind recently was celebrated again because it solved problems to do with protein folding in the cell, um, which is a key part of the way that cells work and was very, very difficult to work out before. But because of sheer quantity of calculation, um, it, DeepMind has been able to predict the ways that proteins fold in cells. And so this you know, will have ramifications for the development of personalized medicine and so on. It will have benefit. But my friend who's worked on this in the past, he said the trouble is that it didn't advance any human insight into the nature of protein folding. And so we just led more and more into the dark, resting on the power of the calculator. Mm. Um, and so not really knowing what we're doing, but just sort of trying to peel off benefits um, along the way. And, you know, people are, even scientists think are quite worried about this really. Um, and partly because they feel it's not really science delivering insight, it's just science developing technologies, um, but also because when those technologies become uncoupled from the insights, you can't see things in the round, you can't see the gestalt, and at some point that is going to come back to haunt us, they fear. Right, and there's some sort of short-term discovery and also this deep temptation to try to operationalize these things without any sense of long-term consequence. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether the opioid crisis is already this unfolding, um, you know, that um, the medication was developed, um, it was described as delivering certain results in certain kinds of ways, but out devoid of a bigger context. And then sure enough, five, 10, 15, 20 years later, it's realized it's killed hundreds of thousands of people, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, the, and the best that industry can do is create a solution that's actually still an opioid. Yeah, I know. But that's that's the loss. That's that's then the compounding loss of the imagination. The response is more research, more, you know, um, medication and so on. It's, it's following the path that is felt to be the only path because other paths have been forgotten. It would seem that um, just going back a little bit, that the danger isn't so much of creating machines that are human, but of humans becoming machine-like. You know, interfacing with machines all day long and having an imagination of the machine somehow. It, there seems to be an imagination now that human beings aren't, there's something wrong with us, that we need to be enhanced through technology or even on, a, on an ecological level, we don't belong here really, the place will be better without us or even these sort of alien kind of notions that we came from space and we're just waiting for the taxi to pick us up and take us back. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, well, maybe just, you know, to put something slightly more optimistic in the conversation, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can feel that pessimism for sure, but then, you know, in another moment, I think, wait a minute, you know, if I think about my own experience of interacting with machines, say algorithms, you know, they're kind of, they kind of deliver something that I'm happy to respond to until they don't. And I'm sort of fed up with YouTube just forcing more of the same at me. And then I have to do a bit of personal work and get another search um, uh, tool to, you know, kind of reveal something new to me. Or, I mean, the, the times which um, you notice it as a writer is when Amazon um, recommends your own books to you and says, you might like to read. <laughs> You know, and you realize that actually the, the algorithm is, is immensely stupid in a way, um, even though it's celebrated as being enormously powerful and, and fancy. Um, and so I, my optimism, you know, is not just that the algorithm won't get smarter, because clearly it will, but that human desire never can be fully matched onto the machine. And That's so we'll true. always escape or have a kind of excess um, from the machine world. And so we'll yearn to look elsewhere. 
Um, so that that's one grounds for hope, at least, um, is that, yeah. you know, actually, we're not machines. And so because we have desires um, that can't be satisfied straightforwardly or even in fancy ways by machines, we'll always want to look elsewhere. Um, you know, people will always want to pay more to go and watch a football match live or a music concert live, even though they can have much better viewing on their gizmo or sound quality pumped straight into their ears, because actually you want more out of music or sport than just to know the score. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you want the full aesthetic. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, before we close, uh, would you like to say something about your most recent book, which I think I'm going to read, your book on Dante? Yeah, well, thank you. So I've, I've written this book called Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey, um, which partly came out of my work on Barfield, um, you know, wanting to engage with one of the great works of the imagination, in the Christian tradition at least, um, that says it's not just a fancy, um, but does disclose reality to you. Um, if you can follow it. And Dante says that quite explicitly. And so my book is, with luck, a guide to help people into that experience of reading the Divine Comedy, because it's not straightforward. It, you know, it is hard work. And, um, you know, I myself have engaged with that over a number of years in different contexts. And um, only actually when I related it to my own experience, particularly in my own psychotherapy, did it really start to speak. Um, so that's my new book trying to um, offer um, a way into the Divine Comedy, which, you know, I can honestly say changed my life quite as much as Barfield did in a way, in a complimentary way. Um, and so, you know, wanting to share some of that. And, and Dante said he wrote for our times. He was one of the first to use the word modern. Um, he wasn't writing uh, as a medieval person really at all. He was writing looking forward. And so I think he still speaks to our times now. Fantastic. And where might people find you? So I have a website, markvernon.com, which I try and use to put everything up online that I do, YouTubes and so on as well. I do quite a lot of YouTube vlogs um, as things come to me. Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, look, thanks for reaching out and sharing the enthusiasm of these things. And, and with luck, it instills sparks of enthusiasm in others as well. I expect it will. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.